Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg, Executive Director of EdSource. And I'm John Fensterwald, Editor-at-Large at EdSource. Welcome, John. Great to be here, Lewis. Well, John, one of the things we were looking at this week here at EdSource was President Trump's State of the Union address, and he did not mention education, for better or worse. The only issue that he raised related to education was he put out a call for more vocational schools, whatever those are. But like so many aspects of the president's political agenda, it was really not defined what he meant by that. Well, 90 minutes of talk, and certainly education wasn't high on that agenda yesterday. Well, it does reflect, I think, the fact that the choice agenda that the president was pushing hasn't really gone very far. There is a provision in the tax bill that allows parents and probably wealthier parents who have $10,000 in their 529 college savings account to spend those funds up to $10,000 on private schools. But the big sweeping proposals that he and uh, the secretary were threatening, I would say, early in their term, haven't really materialized. I think school folks were also listening to see if there's going to be schools included in his so-called massive infrastructure bill, but we don't know what that's going to look like. And so it's too early to say, but schools need repairs as well as roads and bridges. Well, that's true. And of course, the president still has three more years. That's a lot of time to uh, move on some of the issues that he had raised earlier. But so far, he's not getting much traction or support in Congress. So let's move a little closer to home, John. This week, there was a new push in the legislature to look at whether the SAT and the ACT college entrance admissions tests should replace the Common Core aligned tests that now students have to take at least one time during their high school careers. What happened on that front? Yes, this week, Assemblyman Patrick O'Donnell, who's a Democrat from Long Beach, he also chairs the Assembly Education Committee, so he's an education leader. And a former teacher. He is a high school government teacher. He came out with a bill that would require the state superintendent to make the SAT or ACT or possibly both an option for school districts to offer their juniors. And he tried last year with a bill that would have been limited to a pilot study, and it was opposed by Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Torlickson and Mike Kurse, president of the state board, they, they didn't like the idea. And so it died. He said, look, uh, superintendents came back to me and said, we like this idea. We want you to reintroduce a bill. And this had been pushed. One of the people who were at the forefront of this was uh, Long Beach. Yes, Long Beach is one of 30 districts in the state that offer the SAT to all of its juniors free of charge. And other schools offer the SAT too. So... Chris Steinhauser says it's been a tremendous motivator for students to go to college and to help them prepare for college. He says it's helped raise the scores so that a number of students get into Long Beach State who couldn't qualify. He's really supportive of this and says students take it, the SAT, much more seriously than they do the Smarter Balance test. 
Okay, because it's kind of higher stakes and that if they take the smarter balance, there's no consequences for the students. No personal consequence for the student in a year when they have to take advanced placement tests, they have to take the SAT. It's a busy year for, for juniors and this would be giving them the option of taking the SAT instead of smarter balance be one less test. Okay, so Patrick O'Donnell has introduced a bill that would uh, do this. What are the odds of this getting any traction, seeing it didn't get any traction last time around? Well, that's what I said to O'Donnell. I said, look, you know, you had main opposition from the key leaders in the state. Why has anything changed? You know, next year, there'll be a new superintendent, a new governor. So he said, well, it's because people came to me and said, you know, this is really popular. We support it. I think next year, you have to keep in mind that California is a big member of Smarter Balance. Smarter Balance depends on revenue from California. That's the Smarter Balance consortium that came up with these tests. That's right. It's a state-run consortium. California is the biggest contributor. I think, you know, I think that uh, Mike Kirsten Turlickson have their reasons, but one reason they're not saying is, is, you know, we have a big stake in Smarter Balanced, and it's in California's interest that they continue. John, you also wrote this week uh, on an emerging and rather complicated issue having to do with how many schools California would be required to provide assistance to under the Every Student Succeeds Act. That's the federal law. And uh, California has submitted a plan to show how it would hold these schools accountable. And until now, the focus has been on the lowest 5% performing schools, about 300 schools in California. But you say that looking at the details of Every Student Succeeds Act, there might actually be many more schools the state would be required to give assistance to. That's true. You know, here we are in February, and the state submitted its plan in September. And now this issue is really rising to the fore. The issue is you pointed out is not just the 5% of low-performing schools. It's also any school that has a student group, which is poorly performing, too. Meaning uh, special ed kids or low-income kids? That's right. English learners? Well, we have a dozen also racial and ethnic groups. Could be Hispanic kids, could be Asian, white. And if any one group is low-performing by the same definition that you try and find a low-performing school... That also falls under the law, and you have to do a plan for that school. You have to monitor the progress. And the state all of a sudden saw these numbers, the state board, and said, well, wait a minute, that's really not in the direction that we want to go under our plan. We approach it at a district level, and this will divert tremendous energy and resources, and we don't want to do this. Well, how many schools are we talking about, additional schools, in addition to the 300 schools that we know the state would have to provide assistance to? About 2,600 additional schools. So put it all together, about 3,000 schools or about half of the schools in the state that receive Title I federal money for low-income students. Wow, that's, that's, that's a large number. I think that expresses very well the state board's reaction to that. So uh, what are they going to do about this? I mean, uh, this, is, this is actually in the law? It is in the law. So, so what, uh, what's the plan here? Well, the state board, when they saw that number, they said, well, we really have to rethink how the criteria for choosing low-performing schools and then, by implication, choosing the other schools. So they've asked the staff of the California Department of Education to look around, think it again, go see what other states have done, and then come back to us in March. We'll think take this issue up again. It's getting late. The law takes effect in September. 33 states have already had their plans approved. So... 
you know, it, it could be down to the wire, and it will be really interesting to see whether the state and the federal government can reach an agreement on this point. Okay, this is pretty complex stuff, but isn't the main goal here local control? The goal is for every school district to take responsibility themselves for improving the performance of their kids, whether the subgroups or the entire district. Do we really need to have the, the state or the federal government coming in and saying, put pressure on these schools, support these schools, whatever the definition of support is? We're talking about the same students, the federal government and the state. We're talking about working on the achievement gap, narrowing the disparities in results. So we're talking about the same students. The state has one approach. The federal government, by the Every Student Succeeds Act, says take care of individual schools. The state has a very different approach, and it's really important to the state board that this be resolved and that the state be in the driver's seat. Something else came out this week that was interesting, a study on charter schools in California that showed that the growth was not nearly as, as high as it's been over the past decade. We're very pleased to have Trey Cobb on the line. He is a co-author of this new study that the Center on Reinventing Public Education, based at the University of Washington, did, looking at charter school growth in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, Trey, let me ask you, what were the main reasons that the schools, that charter schools didn't increase? And by the way, you've pointed out that it's actually just didn't increase by one. This numbers of charter schools were added, but some actually closed. But how, how do you explain the fact that really there wasn't growth? Well, let me add first before I explain the reasons why is that if you look at um, enrollment trends, um, there's been some declining enrollment growth. So charter schools in the Bay Area have been adding students a little bit slower going back um, to about 2012 or 2013. So the slowdown is a little bit more than just a year and it's a little bit um, larger than just one school. The biggest reason, according to interviews, um, is definitely facilities. So facilities are more scarce, um, facilities are more expensive, and so charter schools five years ago started having trouble finding enough space for students, and as time has progressed, um, it's eventually meant that they're having trouble um, opening new schools as quickly as schools are closing. And that's a particular problem in the San Francisco Bay Area because of the, the rising costs of real estate generally? Right, yeah. And it, it's a problem particularly in the Bay Area because of the success that the sector has had. I mean, one of the other reasons, two of the, the other two reasons are um, competition between charter schools and, frankly, the politics of the area, um, both of which are fueled by the steady growth that the sector has had going back for a while. So at the point where some public school districts are feeling financial pressure because of enrollment trends on their end, um, they might feel like charter schools are to blame for that. Um, and in some cases, that's probably true. And in some cases, that might be less true. But also, you know, charter schools all looking at Oakland or charter schools, a, b a bunch of them are looking at the same places in San Jose. And so as they've been growing really well, 
for a while, they're just starting to kind of run out of space. But I think one of the really interesting things is that charter schools are now competing amongst themselves. Could you just talk a little bit about that? And by the way, you actually interviewed a bunch of people in the Bay Area for the study. So you got the firsthand accounts of what was going on, right? We did, yeah. We managed to interview a strong plurality of the the sector in the Bay Area. And we found that there are really a few different stories depending on the size of the school. So for small schools, if you're a, a single-site school and you want to become a network or if you're a small network with just two or three charters, you're probably going to have fewer students, which means you have uh, less revenue from the amount of students that you have, which means that it's more difficult to hire staff to go out and do a facility search or go out and do like student recruitment or things like that. That having been said, things like demand for charter schools isn't really an issue, but at the point where facilities are so hard to find, um, that kind of makes it difficult for the smaller schools to compete because they just don't have the money for the staff to go out and do the facility search. And then bigger charter providers run into the same challenges. The difference for them is that in the course of a very long facility search where they maybe run into trouble with the school district, they have the resources to sort of get over that hill. So smaller schools end up having to close or not expand or not add students. Um, Larger schools just end up getting delayed. Trey, did you get any sense that some of this slowdown has to do with political opposition on a national level, that we have this uh, pro-choice agenda that uh, both President Trump and the Secretary of Education have advocated, which has really made uh, the whole charter sector um, more politicized and at the center of a lot of big battles here in the state? So, I mean, all politics are local, right? So primary political opposition is definitely driven by school districts concern about how charters affect their own bottom line or sort of like ideological opposition that goes back a little bit longer than the the last presidential election. And those are the things that are drawn out most in the interviews. I think we get a sense that this is something that the sector is going to want to watch out for, that we might be seeing more down the line. It's not been very far into the administration, obviously, Um, on the grand scheme of like a a charter authorization process. And so we would hypothesize, I think, that we'll see more uh, effects of national politics further into the president's term. To what extent do you think some of this slowdown in growth has to do with diminishing demand for charter schools? Does that is that a factor? In other words, maybe the market is getting a bit saturated with charter schools? So I think that Demand is not something, or slowing demand is not something that was evoked as a challenge. Schools didn't report that fewer people want to attend charter schools. That having been said, I think that some markets are getting saturated with schools, period. And that goes back to the facilities challenge, that there's just less space. And so one of the suggestions that we make is that charter schools um, might want to start looking at other places in the Bay Area, places other than where growth has been focused for the last five or 10 years or so. So maybe instead of looking at Richmond, where growth has been focused for the last five or 10 years, looking at a place like Antioch or or Pittsburgh, where they're 
um, our you know charter schools target populations where there's good service that can be done, but um, where the sector hasn't focused on growth as much. This is an issue that others have raised around the state, including Pedro Nogueira at UCLA, that until now charter school growth has pretty much happened without any kind of coordination. Charter schools just pop up wherever they want to establish themselves, and that has is resulting in some of this competition, and it may be thinking through where are the charter schools needed, and uh, that might actually serve kids more effectively than having them concentrated in certain communities uh, and creating the kinds of problems that you've identified. So thank you, uh, Trey, for your uh, thoughts on this, and look forward to staying in touch with you. My pleasure. That was Trey Cobb from the Center on Reinventing Public Education at the University of Washington. He was a co-author with Robin Lake and others on a slowing of charter growth in the San Francisco Bay Area. John, any thoughts on what Trey had to say? Well, together with Los Angeles, the Bay Area has been a place of growth of charter schools. And living in San Jose, I've seen those schools, and many of them are very good schools. But the Bay Area itself is becoming a really declining in enrollment in, in a number of districts. And so the stakes for districts have gotten very high because they see a loss of revenue. In the past, when, when the enrollments were growing, they could accommodate this easier. But now, in a number of districts, they're not growing. And they see it as big competition, and a lot of it's come down to money. Although, as Trey pointed out, some of this is competition between charter schools themselves, which is, adds a whole other dimension to this discussion. Right. And I guess one of the solutions that they're talking about is why don't you move to areas where, in fact, some of the residents in San Jose and the Bay Area who can't afford to live there anymore, they're moving elsewhere. That's perhaps where you should focus your attention. Well, that just about wraps it up. I want to thank John Fensterwald for his thoughts. Sarah Tan, our producer. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you for listening to the podcast, and we look forward to being with you next week again.